and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over 10 years of experience. And this is Trisha, and I sure did a scurry funge before you came over. A scurry funge? That sounds exciting. Uh, it just means to hastily tidy, tidy a house up, like when unexpected company, or in your case, expected company comes, but you just put it off to the last minute. Oh, I do that every time someone comes over. It's kind of like the only time my house looks really nice. I, I mean, not that I'm like dirty, but I kind of am lazy. I can relate to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, welcome to Addicted to Murder. And we finished up Arthur Shawcross, all four parts of him. He's done, gone. Phew. Dunskis. And Courtney picked a big one. So, Courtney, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you picked and maybe a little bit about why? Yeah. So, um, shouldn't we do our question first? Oh, yeah. And then get into that? Sure. It's why also not? me saying that. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So our question before we get into my pick um, is, Trisha, mm-hmm. if you had to pick any character in a movie or TV show who was most similar to you, who would you choose and why? Hmm. <clears throat> well, I don't know. That one's really hard. Um, I know. It took me a minute to think. To let me think. Out. Let me pause this. Okay, so I had to pause a while to think about that one. I didn't want a bunch of dead air. Um, What's come to my mind, which is kind of sad, is Edward Norton's character in Fight Club. So, um, and I don't really know why, but I I just uh, kind of understand his anxiety and his um, uh, need to sometimes disassociate and then like have like a counterpart that's a badass that he's always wanted to be and that's the Brad Pitt character you know Tyler Durden mm-hmm. um and not saying that I'm anywhere near as mentally ill as that character is but I can understand a little bit about his, like you know why he felt the way he did and why he created that character for himself and I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies. And pretty much anything with Edward Norton is going to kick ass. And Fight Club was like a kick-ass movie. All right. Okay. Very thoughtful. Yeah, I guess. But it makes me sound mm-hmm. kind of deranged because it's... <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Very, so. yeah. I mean, you don't have your own Fight Club. No. So. Because I'm afraid of getting hurt because mm-hmm. pain sucks. But yeah. I can totally see how it would, you know, be a nice release and, uh, you know, good camaraderie. And it'd be cool to be in, like, a secret underground club. That's true. You know? So mm-hmm. what about you? Um, so I actually spent a lot of time thinking about this before I came over. This was a hard one. It was a hard one, but I liked it. Um, so I think if Leslie Nope from Parks and Recreation mm-hmm. was an introvert, I think I relate a lot to her. Okay. Yeah. Because I think she's – we're both kind of, like – eternal optimists who Mm -hmm. like really try to see the good in people um, and want to help people um, and like really value our friendships and like the people in our lives are really important to us Mm -hmm. so yeah she's a little more out there than me for sure but she's very complimentary she doesn't like really have bad things to say about anybody right yeah you're like that I try to be yeah I think you kind of have to be in your line of work (laughs) It's true. You gotta have some of that unconditional positive regard. Yeah. Right. Um, the only big difference is that I love libraries and she hates libraries. Oh, 
I don't remember that about her. I've only seen the Parks and Rec once all the way through. Ah. Um, so, you know, but I do know it. Right. So. Okay. I also love waffles and she's obsessed oh, with waffles. Oh, okay. So I, that also helps. Okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So you are definitely an optimist and it sounds like I'm not, but that doesn't make I mean, that totally makes sense. I feel like I'm a cynical and one of my problems, um, that I talk to my therapist about is going to the worst case scenario at all times, even mm-hmm. if it's completely out of the realm of anything that could possibly happen. Right. So I guess that makes sense. That's why we balance each other out. <laughs> yeah. You pull me up and I bring you down. <laughs> That's how it goes. Something like that. All right. Well, good question, Courtney. Um, and so then back to where I started because um, – yeah, circling back because I sometimes forget about the question. Um, and so tell us about this big case we're going to go over and a little bit why you picked it. Yes. Yeah, so this week we've got a, a big player in the serial killer world. The Night Stalker himself, Mr. Richard Ramirez. Um, And I chose him because he is very different from, I think, most of the serial killers that we've talked about so far. And he's got so much kind of backstory um, that I thought it would be really interesting to sort of deep dive into that and explore it a little more. Yeah, um... Richard Ramirez was one that I was sort of afraid to do, so I'm glad that you picked it because it was so it's a bit it's a big commitment. So mm-hmm. um yeah, so we are gonna start today a little different than normal. I'm gonna just give a little bit of information on Richard Ramirez's parents. So prior to um getting into him directly. So Richard's father, Julian Tapia Ramirez was born on February 16th, 1927 in Camargo, Mexico. He was the second of eight children. Oh, by the way, I'm just going to say that we are using the book The Night Stalker, The Life and Crimes of Richard Ramirez by Philip Carlo as the primary research for um, this. But we also, you know, watch the Night Stalker series on Netflix and Murderpedia and Wikipedia and all that as well. Okay, Um, so Richard's father was the second of eight children. And his name was Julian, and his dad, Julian's dad, was extremely physically abusive to all eight of his children. But the culture in Mexico at that time, you know, kind of allowed for parents to beat their offspring, so it wasn't out of the ordinary. In fact, Julian's grandfather also beat him, and his grandpa actually beat him more severely than his own father did. So an example that was given in the book was that, like, say Julian slept in late one day and there there was work to be done, he would be tied to a tree with a rope and then whipped By the time Julian was 14, he had enough of the beatings. He was also a pretty big guy at that point, so he was able to stand up for himself. And he put his foot down. And at the time, I guess, in Mexico, if you did that, if you defied your father in that way, it was a crime punishable by death. Mm -hmm. So... The beatings, though, did stop after this um, because Julian was, you know, pretty much a good kid. He really didn't deserve the beatings he got. Now, Richard's mother, her name was Mercedes, is Mercedes. Um, She was actually born in the United States in Colorado. So she was a U.S. citizen. And her family fled to Mexico during World War II because they were just, her mom was afraid that her children would be drafted. Um, And Mercedes and Julian met through one of Julian's sisters And Julian and her began dating, but she moved with her family to a border town in Mexico to get better jobs. So the two of them continued their relationship. They wrote each other all the time. 
And Julian was drafted into the Mexican army, but he learned how to handle many kinds of weapons and developed other skills there and eventually was discharged when he got very sick. And he came back and he proposed to Mercedes via a letter and she agreed. Um, unfortunately, both sets of the parents were unhappy by this union. Uh, Mercedes' parents didn't think that Julian was good enough and Julian's parents didn't want him to leave and all of this. Um, but because crime was so bad where they were living, the two did get married and moved to El, Ta El Paso, Texas. So remember, Mercedes was a citizen, but Julian was not. Soon after they moved, Mercedes was pregnant. So at this time, um, nuclear bomb testing was occurring in Los Alamos, New Mexico, about 200 miles away from where they were living. And there were certain wind patterns that would um, cause the fallout from those bomb testings to sprinkle all over um, El Paso and where the young couple was living. And their first son, Ruben, was born and was covered with golf, this is a quote, golf ball-sized lumps all over the back of his neck and his head, and he was very sick. So eventually, after a time in an incubator, I think it was several months, um, in the hospital, the baby did improve. However, they weren't sure about that, and last rites had been read more than once for the baby. Um, the family was extremely religious and prayed for a miracle, and they felt that they got that miracle because Ruben recovered. So two months after Ruben was born, Mercedes was pregnant again. She gave birth to another son. His name was Joseph, and he was fine at first, but then he started to cry all the time in pain. The doctors said that his bones were not growing correctly, and he would need several surgeries throughout his life, and he would always struggle with walking, and he would always be in pain. So both of these children's ailments were probably linked to the nuclear fallout from Los Alamos. Um, but, you know, at the time, they really just didn't know about that kind of stuff. In 1952, Julian was deported when immigration officers visited the work site that he was at. Um, he was doing construction at the time. So it doesn't really seem fair, but they also deported Mercedes and the children, even though they were U.S. citizens. I don't know how they got away with that. But anyways, the whole family was deported, and they moved to another border town in Mexico. And again, it was a very dangerous place. Julian did get a job as a policeman soon after he moved through a friend. And I guess in Mexico, that's a very dangerous job. And their, their third son, Robert, was born soon after. And he seemed to be a healthy child, so getting away from that fallout was probably a good thing for their kids. Eventually, Julian got U.S. citizenship, and they all moved back to El Paso. Julian then got a good job with the railroad company, although it was very intensive work. It was backbreaking work, but it, you know, it paid well and it had good benefits. Mercedes started to work at a famous shoe designer's warehouse that was called Tony Lama. Have you ever heard of Tony Lama? I haven't, but maybe it's like a Texas thing. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they're boots, you know, cowboy stuff. I don't right. Know. Okay. Well, there she mixed chemicals and she painted shoes, and it was all in unventilated rooms, and they didn't provide masks. And she would eventually get really sick from the fumes. And then even farther down the road, she would get addicted to the fumes and get sick when she was not around them. So they were not good things. Those fumes were not good for her. She got pregnant, and this time they had a baby girl. Ruth was her name, and Mercedes' fifth and final pregnancy was the hardest on her, and that was little Richard. She had Richard while she was still employed at the shoe factory and still breathing in the toxic fumes. So Richard was born on February 29, 1960. 
So, Courtney, we don't usually get into this much detail about killers before they are born, but I think it's important to point out where Richard came from. His family was primarily a Mexican one who came to America to live the American dream, and unfortunately, the children conceived were not only exposed to nuclear fallout, but extremely toxic fumes. That This may have contributed to some of Richard's problems in the future. Do you have anything you'd like to share? Yes. Um, you know, with Richard's case, I do think that understanding the family history is really important. Um, so on the one hand, there's this field of study that looks at what's called epigenetics, um, which refers to basically how DNA is impacted by generational trauma. Um, and so what's been found is that experiencing trauma can literally change your DNA. Um, and then whatever that mutation is can be passed down to younger generations. Um, and this was originally discovered um, doing like DNA profiles for families of um, victims of the Holocaust. Um, but it's since been shown to be kind of across the board. So any type of like ongoing intense trauma okay. can do that. Um, and so typically the impact that this kind of genetic mutation can have is um, on things like having an elevated stress response. Um, so being more prone to be emotionally reactive to anxiety, stress, anger triggers, all of that kind of thing. Um, and also um, to what's, I guess, best explained as kind of like a resistance to serotonin. So like if your brain doesn't react to serotonin the way it's supposed to, which um, impacts things like anger. So, you know, by the time Richard was born, he was in at least the third generation of men having experienced significant physical abuse. Um, and so I'd be surprised if that didn't impact his genes just from birth. Mm -hmm. You know, and then additionally, we know that stressors and environmental toxins that a mother is exposed to when she's pregnant can directly impact fetal development, right? Most commonly we talk about like fetal alcohol mm -hmm. disorder um, and how that can impact cognitive and emotional development like in the womb and after. And so... We saw with, um, you know, Richard's two oldest brothers that there was very visible effects experienced due to the nuclear fallout exposure. Mm -hmm. um, and while there may not have been anything visibly identified, I would be surprised if, you know, Richard's development was not impacted in some way by his exposure <coughs> Excuse me. to toxic chemicals while in the womb. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Um besides uh, Robert, I believe, was the only one born in Mexico. The other four children were either born with fallout or with these toxic fumes while their mother was pregnant. So in 1963, Julian began to get pretty rageful at home. I think just working on that railroad all the time must have just, you know, made him an angrier person. And he began acting like his father had, and he would become very violent it was also at this time that the eldest son, Reuben, was having behavioral problems at school. Robert and Reuben were both placed into special education classes due to learning disabilities. Ruth spent most of her time playing with Richard like he was her own baby, and Joseph struggled with his legs, and he missed a lot of school because of that. Reuben would eventually hang out with a rough crowd and get into sniffing glue. He even threatened to beat up his babysitter once when she saw him sniffing glue in the house with his friends, and um, she threatened to tell on him. When Richard was two years old, he suffered a pretty significant head injury when he climbed up a dresser and it fell on him. It took 30 sutures and he was unconscious for at least 15 minutes. 
his reason for climbing the dresser was to turn on the radio because apparently he just loved to dance. That was um, pointed out multiple times in the book, how much little Richard just loved to dance. Um, Richard was a hyperactive child, and the babysitter didn't pay enough attention to him, I guess. But, you know, these things happen even to attentive adults, so, you know, kids are just quick. However, Julian was pissed and fired the babysitter. Um, He had gotten progressively more moody, and, um, you know, as his work with the railroad continued, he was getting angrier and angrier, very quick to explode. Reuben and his cousin Miguel were arrested for stealing a car when they were teenagers, and Julian just freaked the F out. Um, Reuben was beaten to a pulp in front of everyone. Julian was definitely turning more and more into his father and grandfather. The other children, after witnessing this and, you know, his other outbursts, were just terrified of him now. But Reuben didn't stop doing these things. He was arrested again for breaking and entering. And Julian, again, beat his son intently, intensely and in front of the other kids. And at this time, Richard was only six years old. Eventually, Robert and even Joseph followed in Reuben's footsteps and began to sniff glue and do even worse in school. Joseph eventually stopped with the fumes, um, but the other two continued. So, Courtney, with Robert and Joseph seeing what happened to their older brother by doing these things, I mean, like, getting the crap beat out of him, you'd think they would, you know, be deterred by that, but they copied him. Can you tell us why that might occur? Yeah, so sibling relationships and influences can be pretty complicated sometimes. You know, younger siblings tend to have some level of like adoration or desire to be liked and accepted by their older siblings. And this can lead to, you know, copying negative behaviors, right? Additionally, you know, Robert and Joseph were also experiencing the same home and societal environment as Reuben, which were, you know, at times very stressful or painful. And so if they saw Reuben get high and not have to, you know, feel those feelings anymore, it would be easy to kind of see sniffing glue or taking substances as a good thing at that time. Um, Not to mention, I think these, in the timeline of these beatings, um, you know, they didn't really start until Reuben was more in his teen years. And by that time, since Joseph and Robert are pretty close in age, they're only like a year apart um they'd already started mm-hmm. with the the drug use and stuff at least mm-hmm. um at that time um and so throw on top of all of that that you know adolescence and the brain still developing and you know teens struggle in general with things like impulse control and feel like they're invincible and nothing bad can really ever happen to them yeah joseph did say that Part of the reason he sniffed the glue was just the physical pain he was in, mm-hmm. and it helped ease that. Right. But he did um, stop because I think he saw that it was leading to mm-hmm. bad things. So Right. And I think there was also experimentation with, like, marijuana mm-hmm. and, like, other substances as well going on. Well, Richard suffered another concussion when he was five, um, and this happened when his sister accidentally hit him when she was on the swing. Richard uh, showed signs of epilepsy when he was in the fifth grade as well. He had a seizure in math class. The school nurse advised that he be taken to a doctor, but for whatever reason, he didn't go to a doctor. So the next day, he had another seizure, seizure, but this time it was in the hallway. This time he was taken to a hospital hospital where the family was told that Richard was experiencing grand mal seizures and he would grow out of them. He was not given any medication. 
Um, but Richard then began having petite seizures constantly. These weren't like the big ones that make your body spaz, but they're more like he would be zoned out, staring at, you know, into nothing for long periods of time. And Richard would have one or two of these small seizures a month for many years. Courtney, I'm thinking that perhaps with nuclear fallout, mom working with hazardous chemicals while pregnant and multiple head injuries, his seizures, you know, may be a result. What do you think? Also, do you know of any mental illnesses tied with a seizure disorder? Yeah, so seizures can definitely be a result of head injuries um, and or like developmental conditions. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is a connection there for Richard. Um, and there are mental illnesses that are connected with epilepsy and other seizure disorders. So on the one hand, people with epilepsy um, have an increased risk of anxiety and depression. Um, but that's kind of more related to like the outward impact of seizures, like how it affects your life, how other people treat you because of it, that like kind of thing. always being worried you're going to have a seizure. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, but internally, kind of more within the brain itself, seizures that impact certain parts of the brain, like the limbic system, which controls like emotions and things like that. Um, those are associated with ADHD, increased impulsivity, risk-taking behaviors, and even aggression. Okay. Richard's brothers were in special education classes with a seemingly well-intentioned teacher named Frank McMahon. Um, but, you know, turns out he was an insatiable pedophile. He molested many, many students, and with Robert and Reuben, he would even go <clears throat> to their house um, when no one was home and continued the abuse there. Richard claims he does not remember if he was abused by Mr. McMahon, but there would have been ample opportunity as he was around him quite a bit when he went to the house to abuse his brothers. Richard does claim that he witnessed a little boy being sodomized in a yard in his neighborhood by another pedophile. He remembered the boy screaming, but Richard turned and walked away. Reuben kept getting in trouble with the law at this time, and it got to the point where his parents had to start selling property just to afford his lawyers. So after three years of attorney fees, all of the property Julian had accumulated by his you know, intense hard work at the railroad was gone. Some of this bad behavior was blamed on their cousin Miguel, the one that he sold the car with. Eventually, Miguel was sent to Vietnam, and he will definitely play a part later in the story. Courtney, do you feel Richard was molested by Mr. McMahon? I'm thinking that because he claims he does not remember, he was. Either he's ashamed to admit it or he blocked it out, disassociated, etc. Of course, I'm speculating. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we can know for sure. Um, but kind of my impression just from reading and, and watching the interviews um, with him is that I don't know that he would be shy about sharing if this had happened to him. You know, he was pretty open about all the other things that he witnessed and experienced um, when he was younger. And additionally, just like a, a sort of side thought is he was much younger than his older brothers. So I would also wonder if at that time, if he would fit into like the victim type that Mr. McMahon preferred. Mm -hmm. Like he may have preferred the like older children, um, kind of preteen as opposed to like young children. Always gross, always terrible. Um, yeah. Just a thought. Yeah. It, yeah. You, it's, it is just speculating. But so Richard um, did become, you know, tall. He was good looking. And so I'm sorry, I'm going to jump forward a little bit. Then we're going to go back. But this is he was the quarterback for his football team for a time. But he was cut because of his epilepsy. His family did not get a medication, and that could have definitely helped with the seizures. I'm not sure why. I don't know if they weren't they weren't aware, um, you know, if they, it wasn't available. But 
you know, whatever. He ended up getting cut. So Ruth Richard's sisters, uh, Richard's sisters claimed that this event of him getting cut from the football team is what changed Richard. And at this time, Miguel, the cousin, returned from Vietnam after two tours. He had won medals and was a Green Beret. Miguel claims to have killed 29 people in Vietnam. And Courtney, unlike Arthur Shawcross, I'm willing to believe that he did have some kills over there. Yes. So? Yeah. Miguel liked the tours of dirty, duty. He claimed to have engaged in mutilating the bodies of fallen Viet Cong and raping the women. When Miguel came back, Richard and he started to hang out a lot. Now, Richard's still really young, like eight or nine years old. Uh, Miguel showed many Polaroids to Richard of women being forced at, at gunpoint to satisfy him sexually. He also showed Richard, quote, shrunken heads that he collected in Vietnam. And apparently, while he was there, he would use them as pillows. Miguel was married to a woman named Jessie, and they had um, two sons. When he returned to the States, Miguel did not enter any sort of therapy program to adjust back to life over here. We should have done that, I think. <laughs> uh, Richard would get excited by Miguel's pictures and the stories he would tell, and Richard would begin to think at this time that perhaps he was more inclined to be a disciple of Satan than of Jesus, as his parents were. So remember, his parents were very um, religious, Catholic, I believe, mm -hmm. and it was a big part of their life. And um, it was this time that Richard started to think maybe he was different because he was getting excited by things he knew was um, was bad. I mean, that he was taught mm -hmm. was bad. Right. So um, it was at this... Okay, sorry. So Richard, at the age of 10, was already a chronic pot smoker, and he imbibed even more when Michael or Miguel came back. They hung out all the time. Kind of inappropriate, but whatevs. Um, Jessie, Miguel's wife was not happy with the state of her life or her marriage. All Miguel liked to do was get high with Richard and drive around. You know, talk about his glory days in Vietnam. He refused to get a job or, you know, do anything around the house. Jesse and Jesse's mother would constantly hound Michael to grow up, provide for the family, stop hanging out with kids, etc. On May 4th, 1973, Richard was over at his cousin's house while Jesse was out, and he saw a gun inside the refrigerator. When he asked Miguel about it, Miguel responded, quote, I may be using it, and I want it to be cool, end quote. Richard was confused, but shrugged off the response. When Jessie got home, she started in again on Miguel and his life choices and all that, and Miguel responded by pulling the gun out of the fridge and pointing it at her face. Jessie was not bothered by this. You know, I, maybe this has happened between them before, but I guess she just kept going, to, uh, you know, on her rant. And Miguel just shot her in the face. She dropped to the floor dead instantly. All of this occurred in front of Richard, who now was 12 years old and extremely impressionable. Miguel kicked Richard out of the house and said, don't ever tell anyone what just occurred. What just occurred. You did not see this. Just go home. Uh, Richard did as he was told, even though he was extremely upset by, why he, by what he witnessed. Miguel was arrested that night for the murder of Jesse, so it doesn't sound like he ran or anything, you know. Um, and apparently Miguel was popular in jail while he waited for his trial. Miguel was very tough and unafraid, you know, and he was in his element, Kind of been institutionalized by the army, it sounds like, maybe. Courtney, do you want to discuss a bit of what can happen when a person like Richard witnesses something like this? He basically worshipped his cousin, so I'm assuming many conflicting emotions are occurring. Also, is there anything you want to talk about regarding Miguel's mental state? i just like to start out with, you know, I believe that Miguel was likely a psychopath and that his time in the military in the military kind of just enforced any sort of violent tendencies that he already had. 
I mean, he clearly had no concern for how his stories, pictures, and actions could have a bad impact on his younger cousin, um, who, again, started hearing these stories and seeing these pictures and committing crimes with this guy at, you know, nine or ten years old. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then there's Richard on the other side, who's already been exposed to violence by, you know, watching his father beat his brothers um, and seeing his brothers get in trouble and fighting and getting arrested and all that kind of stuff. Um, And so in a way, he kind of was already starting to be desensitized by it. It was becoming something almost normal in his life. Um, But when a child witnesses a murder or any other act of extreme violence, it is going to be traumatic. Um, You know, it's going to be life-changing in some way for typical kids. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that's terrifying. It's scary. It's overwhelming. Um, very much likely to cause PTSD, um, all of those things. But for Richard, you know, since he was already kind of desensitized and had been hearing these stories from Miguel that really glorified violence and killing, um, and then for Miguel to react in kind of such a nonchalant way about what he did, just like, get out, go home, don't tell anyone what you saw, you know, Richard likely thought that it was kind of a much smaller deal than most people would. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't know how he felt about Jesse, um, but, you know, she'd been his aunt for a while, so he, he knew her, you know. Right. I don't mm-hmm. know if that would play into anything, but. Well, after the murder, Julian and Richard went to the apartment to get a few things that Miguel had requested, and this was one of the first times Richard realized he was different from other people. Um, This is a quote from the book we have been using for our research. Quote, that day I went back to that apartment. It was like some kind of mystical experience. It was all quiet and still hot in there. You could smell the dried blood. Particles of dust just seemed to hover in the air. I looked at the place where Jesse had fallen and died, and I got this tingly feeling. It was the strangest thing. Then my father told me to look in her pocketbook for this jewelry my cousin wanted, and I dumped Jesse's pocketbook on the bed and looked through her things. It gave me the weirdest feeling. I mean, I knew her, and these were her things, and she was dead, murdered, gone, and I'm touching her things. It made me feel in contact with her, end quote. Courtney, what do you think Richard is experiencing? Do you think the tingly feeling was adrenaline? To me, it sounds more like the beginnings maybe of sexual arousal. You know, being 12, Richard was right at that age where he was developing sexually and starting to learn who and what he was attracted to. Um, And I mean, we will clearly see later that Richard is sexually aroused by violence, blood, and killing. So this might be the beginning of his sexual sadism? Yes, I think so. Well, several months later, Miguel went to trial for the killing of Jesse, and Miguel pleaded and won with the temporary insanity defense. The claims were that Miguel suffered PTSD from the war. The jury was sympathetic as he was portrayed as a war hero. He was committed to a state mental hospital in Texas for an indefinite amount of time. So, Courtney, we finally see an insanity defense work. What do you think about that? Based on what you know of Miguel, do you think he was insane? Or, you know, you did state you thought he was a psychopath. you think it's something beyond that? I do not believe that Miguel was insane. Um, You know, all of his prior behaviors point to his being, you know, proud and excited of the things that happened when he 
was in Vietnam and the things that he did there, as opposed to being like scared and avoidant of thinking about it, um, the way PTSD would typically look. Um, and like you said, and I mentioned earlier, I think he's a psychopath, and I think that he used the system to his advantage. The only reason I thought that maybe the insanity defense worked beyond just the war hero thing was if he turned himself in or, you know, he didn't run, he didn't hide after he murdered Jesse. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if he, if he didn't think he did wrong, maybe, but I don't really know exactly how that all went down. Mm -hmm. That was the only thing that made me think, okay, well maybe he, he does have a bit of insanity in him, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think what I remember reading in the book about kind of why they went that direction is he kind of claimed that he basically like had a flashback of being in Vietnam and was reacting to Mm -hmm. that as opposed to his actual wife. Okay. Um, But I honestly, I don't believe that. Yeah. Well, so after his cousin, Miguel went to, you know, the state hospital, Richard started to skip more school, steal more items, use more drugs. And then that summer was the first time he went and visited his brother who was now living in Los Angeles. So, Courtney, that's where I'm going to stop for today. Mm-hmm. And um, do you have anything you want to elaborate on? Um, I think that is a pretty good kind of description of his childhood and his experiences that started to shape who he would eventually become. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of in episodes, episode two and probably three, I imagine, um, I think there'll be a, a pretty almost like linear progression that we Mm -hmm. can see starting with some of these incidents that happened when he was a child. I mean, it sounds like if what you were saying earlier is correct, he was predisposed to what happens to him next. Doesn't mean that Mm -hmm. he couldn't have stopped it or, you know, didn't have to give into those violent urges, but Mm -hmm. before he was Mm -hmm. even born, he might've already had the odds stacked against him as far as going down this path. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, all right, everybody, um, stay safe and thank you. Oh, no, we're not done yet. I am doing social media. Yes, you are. Good grief. Okay. If you like what you heard and you want to tell us about it, um, you can do that in several ways. You can email us at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. You can Instagram direct message us or, you know, leave a comment on one of our many pictures and posts that we do. That's at addicted to M podcast. And then YouTube, TikTok, um, Facebook, and Twitter at addicted to murder podcast. Be sure to check out the videos that Courtney and I post periodically. um, If you are interested in learning a little bit more about some of these disorders that we discuss and um, let us know if you have any ideas or questions all of that. Please subscribe, like, all of those good things to help us keep doing this. Yes. Okay. I second everything that Trisha just said. <laughs> all right, you guys. Now, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.